What's going on, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Terror Table, a horror movie podcast that is presented by the Saskatchewan Podcast Network. On this very special episode, Kyle and myself welcome producer, writer, and director Michael Peterson to discuss the making of his 2018 film, Knuckleball. We also discussed the recently released black comedy thriller, Harpoon, which Michael produced. Michael offers up some great insights into his filmmaking process, and he shares some really cool stories from his time writing, directing, and producing genre films. Michael is an up-and-coming Canadian treasure, and we were so happy to have the opportunity to sit down with him and talk for an hour. We are both big fans of Harpoon and Knuckleball, and we highly encourage you all to check these films out for yourselves if you haven't yet. Once again, Knuckleball is available on Crave in Canada, if, if that's where you are. As per usual, we asked Mike to choose a subgenre that he is interested in to highlight some of his favorite titles for the end of the episode. If you have seen Knuckleball, you'll understand why Mike chose to share some of his favorite child-led horror films. We were once again lucky enough to have been joined by a guest who put some genuine thought into his picks, and we are confident that this episode will provide you all with some killer recommendations. Next week, we will be back and we'll be kicking off our latest series of episodes. We decided on this theme near the beginning of our Nightmare on Elm Street franchise series, and we are thrilled to kick off our World Horror Series. For the next three episodes, myself, Kyle, and Boozy have each chosen a foreign language horror film to discuss on the show. The first installment is coming your way on June 22nd, in which we will discuss my foreign film pick, the French extreme classic Martyrs from 2008. The following week, we will discuss Kyle's pick, The Skin I Live In, from 2011 from Spain, and the series will conclude with Boozy's pick, the Persian-language film A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, from 2014. So if you haven't yet, be sure you're subscribed to The Terror Table on your favorite podcasting app, and don't forget to check out our new website at theterrortable.com, where you can find more of our episodes and links to all of our other social medias. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Uh, But without further ado, here is our discussion with filmmaker Michael Peterson. Can't even get a signal out here. You said you were dropping off a boy. I see a full-grown working man here. You'd be good. We'll be back before you know it. You get to work. Go over to the shed and get us some wood. Want wood? Who are you? With this hand, I want you to come right over the top. You did good today, son. I need to call my parents. Storm. Once it starts, the phones go down. Looks like we'll be going to a funeral. I'll make us up some soup and sandwiches, huh? Right! The boy is smart. Real smart. Henry, come out! It's just a game! And you did so good! Hi, Henry. 
We'll just have to have some fun. All right. We are back at the virtual terror table. And today we are welcoming a very special guest uh, all the way from Calgary, Alberta. We're welcoming the producer, writer and director, Michael Peterson. Welcome to the terror table, Mike. How you doing? I'm doing well. How are you guys? Doing very well. Doing very excellent well. here. We're, yeah. we're living in a horror movie right now, sort of. Hey, wow. A virtual yeah. horror movie. Yeah, in some ways. And then other ways where it's a super optimistic, uh, I don't know, drama, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Potentially optimistic drama. For sure. Somewhere in between. Well, first off, Mike, I just want to thank, thank you a ton for joining us today. We're really excited to talk to you about um, your filmmaking journey, your relationship with horror movies, and your top five child-led horror films, which we're going to cap the episode off with. Uh, which this is going to be a great companion episode with a previous guest of the show that we had on recently was Brandon Christensen, uh, who is also from Calgary. He, he chose creepy kid horror movies. Um, are you guys pals by any chance or did we find ourselves in the middle of our very first turf war? <laughs> no, the uh, yeah, we're, we are pals. Uh, we have a, a mutual friend that we both uh, work with a lot named Kurt Harder. Oh, cool. Awesome. Um, so Kurt and I have known each other for a pretty long time. We worked on a lot of projects together. And uh, Kurt and him work on a lot of stuff. And I know they're actually cooking up something new, I think, as soon as they can start shooting. That's awesome. Great. Uh, cool. Well, just to get things started out here, since we are a horror podcast, um, I was just curious, have you ever considered yourself to be a horror fan? Like, are you a fan of horror movies? And if so, what are the ones that have had the biggest impression on you? Yeah, I am. A, I am a fan of horror films. I mean, I'm a fan of genre films, I guess, would be a better way to describe it. So for me, it's a probably a bigger uh, umbrella, but um, but yeah, like you know, this like well, The Shining, The Shining, like I watched before I made this film, the or Knuckleball, I I um I watched The Shining probably 20 times or something. I watched it with the sound, without sound, uh, with the commentary track. Just watched it while I was making notes about things. <clears throat> um, so that's definitely one. I mean, there's nothing special about that, I suppose. Uh, it's a pretty common film for people to have as a favorite oh no that's still that's the legendary film well yeah and there's always something to grab from the shining right like you just described it well you watched it in three or four different ways and you, yeah. you were able to pull different pieces from it yeah and it wasn't boring any of those times uh it was yeah it was pretty uh, exceptional and you know like um the exorcist is always going to be a classic and i actually really like him and i would consider myself hopefully more a filmmaker like him only in the sense that he covered a lot of ground and did different types of movies. Uh, and that's, like William Friedkin, you think? Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, like he has, he has such a, uh, uh, he's done a bunch of different types of films and done them all really well. Yeah. I've always really admired people that are able to do that. So on the horse. <laughs> <laughs> I'm being attacked by dogs. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, yeah, because you, you you began your career working like making a ton of short films, and followed by your first feature film in 2011, which was Lloyd the Conqueror, which is a comedy set around the live action role playing community. What inspired you to jump into like a dark and mean horror thriller after something like that? I, I can tell you exactly why, but let me put these dogs yeah. that are attacking me away. They attacked. Okay, sounds good. Yeah. So what so what you guys can't see is that I'm covered in blood, but only from about the ways down oh. um, <laughs> by, uh, a, a dash and chihuahua mix oh uh, wow a pomeranian i'm gonna multi- take your word for it yeah <laughs> luckily i got them in their cages it sounded vicious vicious beasts oh yeah um but yeah no it was a really conscious decision um 
And like I was saying, the the idea of um, <laughs> the idea of wanting to make a whole bunch of different types of stories is something that really appeals to me. So when I made uh, Lloyd the Conqueror, like comedy doesn't really feel to me exactly like a director's genre, and I think in most instances it isn't. There's a few exceptions, but you don't. I've always felt like if you get too much in the way of of the the comedy, then you kind of destroy it. So if the camera's too active or you know, you're too showy or you're doing too much uh, visually outside of just really trying to get the payoff on a joke or a setup, then you're distracting from what your what your purpose is there, which is to, you know, make people laugh within a story structure. So I, for, for the next thing I wanted to make, I wanted to make something where I was able to sort of insert my 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 eye or my perspective in a much different way. And that's what knuckleball was, was something where I felt I wouldn't I wouldn't be intruding if I brought my perspective into it and let the camera kind of, you know, write a little bit more and get a little more purple prose, prose-ish in some ways. You uh, co-wrote Knuckleball with Kevin Cockle. Is that, yeah. that's correct? Yeah. So like, did, was that something, did you guys write that script together? Or did he have it pre-written or did you start writing it or how, how did this come to be? Yeah. Kevin, Kevin uh, is someone from Calgary who writes short stories and mostly horror stuff or at least genre stuff. So he's written some sci-fi stories and some horror stories and a few other types of things sort of around around that type of type of uh, <laughs> type of story and mostly and short stories like I said. So, anyways, one day I read an article in the paper about some local guy that had written as part of this uh, vampire anthology, and vampires aren't something that really you know appeal to me overly overly well. So it's not something I'm like I don't fetishize vampires. It's not like I wouldn't call that my thing. You know what I mean? But I was curious that there was a guy in town that was writing short horror stories and uh he's and and then i reached out to him and then we met up and then we talked and we had a lot of other things in common and asked him if he ever if he had ever written for any um films and i guess he had a long time ago but you know nothing that ever got produced so i asked him if he wanted to co-write something or give it a shot anyways because it's really hard to find good collaborators especially when you're writing and i like to write in a team i don't like to write alone um so we gave it a shot and it worked out really well we wrote about three or four projects together. Um, yeah, he, we kind of sat down and went through an outline. He did the first draft, um, and then I would do a draft, then send it back. And then when we got closer to production, I would get into some more of the fine details that would be related to, you know, your locations and casting and other things. I find that really interesting that you take a risk on somebody you just found on the paper rather than, like, grabbing a friend you knew or something. That's, that's bold. Yeah, well, you know, there's so many crazy reasons why things get made. And I read his I read his uh, vampire story. Right. And what I liked about it was it actually wasn't really a vampire story. Okay. So it was like this great like kind of uh, multi-genre or like cross blurring genre genre boundaries genre lines and stuff like that. So I really liked that part of it because it was it was really about the some guy that was working in the financial industry. Okay. Oh wow. So you cool. saw through like the garlic and the steak, and you knew there was something more there. Oh yeah, it was it was a really cool story because I was like this this could also not be a vampire story with a couple of modifications, like slight modifications. It's like yeah, right. There's more That's of awesome. a you know an interesting idea. It's more of a critique about these kind of high powered uh, like money manager you know high finance type folks. That's a really interesting way to go about it, and it seems like that's probably one of the best ways to get original concepts out there these days, which Knuckleball is definitely – Knuckleball and Harpoon are both very original yeah. in their own – they're both movies that you could see. Like, I know you only produced Harpoon, Harpoon um, but they both have, like, their feet in other genres or other stories that have been told before, but they're so vastly different. 
Well, and that that was uh, I've worked with Rob a bunch of times. Rob, who directed Harpoon, was the editor for Knuckleball. Right. Yeah. Um, and then we then we did another one where I I did some writing on it um, that he directed and did the other writing on um, and produced that one. So I think this is our fourth film together or something like that. Um, but when when like when he he was like fuck this I don't want to make anything else you know <laughs> kind of sick and tired of it all <clears throat> so I was like just like what do you really want to make and he's like well I've got this one idea but you know I don't think I don't know it's kind of crazy I don't know if it's a good idea <clears throat> uh, and then and then he told it to me and I was like you should just go for it man if you go for this I'll do everything I can to help make this or help get this made uh, and then he wrote the script and it was even better than how he pitched the original idea. So I'd sent it around or pitched it to a few people and it was a really mixed reaction, but overall the reaction was like, we don't think you should make this movie. You know, the characters are unlikable. Um, I don't get the humor, things like that. Right. And I was like, well, I get the humor. Rob's a great filmmaker and he really understands tone. And that's what will make this film work. In my opinion, is someone who really understands tone and how to control tone. So oh, you can man. Go- kind of the thrilling moments, the violent moments, the comedic moments. That's what makes that film work, in my opinion. You know, it definitely comes through, too. Things, like, but, that's but, both of it, both of you guys' films. But the, you, but you the, that, that's the nuance of it, that like, if you don't have that, then it becomes probably not a very good movie, even if the yeah. actors are great and everything's great. Um, so I had 100% confidence that he would pull it off. And like, I, I would even be like, you know, you can go longer today. You can go over today if you want. Like, don't worry about it. And he's like, no, 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 I won't do that. And I was like, yeah, but you can. <laughs> well, I got what I needed. I got what do I needed. It, do what feels right. <laughs> yeah, you seem to collaborate with a, well, like a to, few yeah. of the same people a lot. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say he he was he was he was just he wanted to go for it on that one because he's like maybe this is I'll never make another movie. So right. if I'm gonna go out, I want to go out doing the thing that I thought you know was exactly how how it should be. Man, he made a very memorable movie. <laughs> Without a doubt. Yeah. And he's lucky totally. to have yeah. you as a support system there. Totally. Well, well I, I really do believe in him. Um, I think he's like, you know, a fantastic filmmaker. He's probably, I would think, one of the better filmmakers in Canada uh, and consistently doing this over and over again. And it's sort of a shame that he's, you know, has, I don't know how you break in Canada, but, you know, has anyone made it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's a good question. <laughs> but it isn't easier for him, I guess, on You're some right. level. Well, you do seem to yeah. collaborate with a few of the same people. Um, did you guys like go to film school together or are you just like friends from other friends, partnerships from other jobs? Like how do these things kind of come about? Yeah, so when Lloyd the Conqueror was touring around, Mon Ami was also touring around, which we made a sequel to with Fake Blood ships passing in the night kind of stuff i didn't know him at that point but i knew uh mike kovac i'd met him at a one or two festivals who was out there for mon Ami. okay so we, you know we already like taste wise probably had a fair bit of crossover and then we then i went to the canadian film center and i showed up and I, like i you know uh, maybe this is silly but coming from out west you always feel a little bit like an outsider when you go to toronto even though i was born there um but, you know, you you feel like an outsider on, in, on some level, I guess. Uh, and then on top of that, I'm making films that I don't think are traditionally what people would consider Canadian films. Okay. So that's how I'm arriving at the Canadian Film Center. <laughs> <laughs> and then, then the other person there, 
or one of the other directors, because uh, it was a great group of people, but one of the other directors is Rob Grant, who's making essentially like horror comedy type stuff, who also doesn't exactly fit into what you, you know, the stereotypical idea of, you know, Canadians making dramas or, you know, whatever that stereotype is. So we were sort of the genre guys working at the CFC and both felt like we were a little bit outside of what they traditionally do. Um, whether that's true or not, I, maybe I'm wrong, but at least that was the feeling we had. Uh, so we, we got to spend a fair bit of time, time there. Uh, and then I think it was like a year later or something like that. We just met up at TIFF and he told me about this idea he had for a documentary. And I was like, you should make that man. If you want, if you want to make that, I will, you know, like just give me like two months or a month and I'll come up with the money to try to make that. Cause I think it's cheap to make. And it's a great idea. And then I was able to pull it together very shortly, like a week or two after that. Uh, and then wow. I was like, let's do it. Let's fucking make this thing, man. Uh, <laughs> so we made uh, Fake Blood. There's a, there's, a, there's a real like space in documentary for experimentation, which doesn't happen that often. It's happening more and more. Um, but, you know, over the history of documentary, experimentation isn't something, it's like a very conservative kind of genre. So to me, to make something that was playing with uh, mock or sorry documentary, but wasn't a mockumentary and was like kind of half true, but half not, but sort of the truth is the point of the thing was really exciting it, along like a, as a formal experiment. Right. And that almost fits in with being a genre film, right? Like kind of blurring the lines between what is sort of anticipated or maybe acceptable. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, hopefully, yeah, it, but also to like blend like blend and play with whatever these uh, genre tropes are. Sure. Yeah. And try I to actually, I actually haven't, I haven't seen fake blood yet, but I just looked it up here. It's playing on Amazon prime right now. So that's a place where people can check it out. And it also features Mike Kovac, who I believe was a co-writer on Harpoon. Is that... Yeah. Well, it's not really. Um, oh. <laughs> I think just the uh, credit. <laughs> well, no, what happened is uh, he helped, I don't remember what the credit is, like additional writing or something like that. Yeah. But the narration in Harpoon was the part that like kept going around and around and around. It was there from the very beginning. The original like uh, lines of the beginning were uh, something along, something to the effect of like, like someone being like, you know, this is, this is a, you know, you think you're in a story, you think, you know, you meet a girl, you think you're in a love story, then she breaks up with you, then you're in like a, a, a melodrama and then, you know, someone dies and then you think you're in a, you know, a murder mystery. Like you, we're all in these stories and we don't know what they are, but why does our story have to be one thing? And it was someone yeah. talking about that and then basically telling the audience to go fuck themselves. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, awesome. so we ch- I liked it, but it, you know, we, I think what we ended up with was stronger. Right. You were the producer on Harpoon and the film played at the Saskatoon Fantastic Film Festival here last year. I guess for our listeners who like aren't familiar with the ins and outs of making a film, what did your job entail you as producer? How hands-on were you for the production? Yeah, well, on that one, I would have been very hands-on. I would have, um, Rob told me the story that he wanted to put together. Then I, So Rob, Rob wrote the first draft of the script, and then I would have given him some notes, and I'm sure he sent it to a couple other people. Uh, and we would have probably gone through about three revisions or something like that on that script. Right. Just based on how Rob writes, because he'll sit with an idea forever and he won't write it down until he feels like he's kind of solved all the problems. 
and then you'll spit it out, and then it's usually pretty close. And then it's usually only a couple revisions until it's kind of a polished, ready-to-go draft. <laughs> like I was saying, I was like, you got to go for the actors that you want, you know? So we made it uh, a SAG shoot rather than an actress shoot. Oh, okay. Both so that we could bring in American actors, which wasn't to sort of go after American actors. It was really just to kind of open up the the, the, ca- the casting possibilities that we had. Uh, and then I would have helped put it together on that one. I like would have done a lot of things just because it was like a, you know, I don't know, 18, 20 person crew. Um, okay. So I would have been there for the whole thing. And then during the edit, you know, I'm giving giving notes and he's sometimes disagreeing with me and doing whatever. But I mean, our like the the are almost always our push back and forth is I'm like, you can go further or you can do that. And it doesn't matter. Like, just do it because you like it or you want to. And he's like, no, it doesn't hold up for this story. It's too much. So he's like a very efficient filmmaker, both in how he shoots and how he cuts. And sometimes I think it's okay to just like let it hang out a little bit more, maybe. Hmm. So I'm always trying to push him into, you know, at least trying that. Right. But, it's so just, the, but the instinct is good. So you're sort of providing guidance, like through pre-production, production, editing. Well, hopefully, just a like a like another voice that he can trust. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> right. Because you end up in these things, and there's so many decisions to make, and they're you know at some point it's just very overwhelming. <clears throat> and sometimes I don't know if he does. I, I probably do more than he does, but you just lose your footing and you just become unsure. Right. So you need those, those trusted voices that, you know, they're not making that decision because it's for the budget or for, uh, you know, convenience or whatever you want to, you want, you want that decision to come because it's got the artistic integrity. Right. Yeah. So those are hard, hard uh, collaborators to find. Uh, one thing I noticed actually on the digital release of Knuckleball was that Raven Banner was involved. What's the what's the background on that, and how did that relationship come about? I mean, Raven Banner's put out quite a few things like Climax, The Battery, Supergrid from Saskatchewan here. Yeah, um, on that one, I think I just called them up and asked them. I don't That's awesome. Think it would be trickier than that, like there's not that many of these these uh, of distributors in Canada. Period. Right. So sure. Yeah. You get to know most of them, if not all of them. So typically you can just kind of, you know, send them a note and tell them about the project and they'll usually get back to you pretty quickly and let you know if it's something they're interested in or not. And for that project, it seemed they seemed like a pretty good fit for a film like Knuckleball. No, absolutely. Yeah, I thought that would that really fit great, great on the roster, I thought. Yeah, and they, they got it onto Crave, which I think is where a lot of people have probably seen it. That's where I that's, saw it. Yeah, yeah, that's where I saw it too. Because I've been, uh, I've heard, I only heard about Knuckleball when uh, I believe it was, is it Calgary After Dark? Is that the festival? Or there was a Calgary Film Festival of some kind. Oh, it was that Calgary Underground. Yes, a uh, friend and listener of the show. Uh, she was in attendance, and I think you were there. You did a Q and A or something, and she saw the film. Uh, or I, I'm not sure if you were there or if uh, Monroe Chambers or who was all in attendance, but she saw the film there, not knowing anything about it, and it blew her away. And she was so so excited to tell us about it. And we've been trying to see it ever since, and I couldn't find it anywhere. Like I I actually didn't know when I didn't know that it was even released at this point. And then when it popped up on Crave, I was like, oh hell yeah. And then a bunch of friends have been talking about it lately. So yeah, I think it's making the rounds on Crave right now, which is yeah, great. Yeah, that's awesome. It was kind of on their front page for horror for a long time. I don't know if it still is there, but up until yeah, well, recently. I, definitely yeah, 
well, obviously, like I'm a I'm a horror nut. I obviously, I like things other than horror, but I uh, I uh, when I jumped back on the Crave bandwagon, that was the first thing I jumped to. So it was awesome. Eric, Kyle, you got a question? I have a big question, actually. So <laughs> this I had to ask it at some point. How is it working with the Canadian teen drama legend Monroe Chambers, a.k.a. Eli from Degrassi, The Next Generation? Are you a Degrassi fan at all for this Canadian <laughs> institution? And I need to probably show my um, yeah. <laughs> my Degrassi pillow here. Um, and I have, you know, I got a couple of box sets featuring, you know, Monroe's beautiful mug. You know, Kyle's really great, a very big Degrassi fan. Yeah, He's got really a Degrassi pillow. So it's it's become an issue in my life, but I like to think that it's an issue in a lot of Canadians' life lives. So I mean, where did that come from? Where, where did the relationship with Monroe come? Because obviously he was in um, Knuckleball and then was in Harpoon as well. So yeah. I'm, I'm kind of curious how that came to be. And then also, if you have a favorite Degrassi episode, please tell me. Sorry, I'll tell you about Degrassi first. Um, <laughs> please. So, um, for, for, first of all, Michael, we we've asked this question. We've been fortunate enough to talk to a couple Canadian directors and this is the first time someone's been able to actually tell us about Degrassi so thank oh, you for that yeah like yeah. well because like, lots of Canadian filmmakers get to work with uh, actors from Degrassi uh, but that just so happens to be something that raised all three of us here uh, we have another co-host who couldn't be here today but Degrassi is a big thing at this this horror podcast well on the on the the first Degrassi I was actually a background actor on it no way and uh, my cousin, who I'm not close with, um, was the character. Uh, I don't know. Her mom got cancer or something in the show. Oh god, <laughs> she's one of the cancer ones. <laughs> so this is the original one, and then uh, and then the episode that I was on was about a game show, and then one was like a year-end dance. Oh so my I, goodness! So I did a I skated a bunch with uh, Joey Jeremiah and Snake. That wow. That is crazy. <laughs> you skated with Pat, Joey yeah. Jeremiah himself. Yeah. Oh my God. Was your cousin? Did she play LD by chance? That's right. Yes, LD. Okay, just checking. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> so Kyle's on cloud nine. So yeah, I got to. That was one of the first times I was actually probably hung out on a set. Wow. So it runs deep. So. Well, Obviously, though, Monroe is from the next generation, years and yeah. years later. I didn't watch that, but every time I've done casting and you, you hit a certain age range, basically all your casts come from Degrassi. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Well, makes enough sense. Like, on, I remember when I was doing Lloyd the Conqueror, like, one of the names on the list that some someone casting agent or someone sent to me was, like, Drake. Oh, like, wow. Well, what the fuck is this Drake guy? <laughs> no way. Imagine you could have had Drake in your LARPing comedy. Yeah, and I don't, I don't like who knows if that would have happened. He's just on a list of a possibility or whatever. But the, yeah, it's it's pretty sure. funny to think of how uh, you know I blew it. <laughs> yeah, started from the bottom now you're here. You should have reached out more. Well, I'm pretty happy with the people I had in there. So, but it, yeah, it, it's a it's I totally remember that um, that moment reading his name and I'm like, who's Drake? What is? Why does he only have one name? That's too funny. <laughs> yeah. A cool guy, I guess. Well, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, you ended up with, uh, in Lloyd the Conqueror, you saw, like, Brian Posehn and Mike Smith and then, like, uh, Canadian legend Harlan Williams. Like, that must have been just awesome. That was really fun. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. Cool. Well, um, moving on from that, 
Uh, whoa, where the fuck? Oh, well, well, I'll tell you about the the one last. Um, so a knuckleball, Ironside asked yeah. me. Oh yeah, I, that's coming up. <laughs> so he asked me if I would consider him to be in the film, and I was like, I haven't acted, but at that point I hadn't watched. Um, uh, wow, that cool movie with the BMX kid. Oh, <laughs> uh, oh, uh, Turbo, Turbo Kid, kid. Turbo, 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 yeah, yeah, Turbo yeah. Kid. He's in Turbo um, Kid. Yeah, and I hadn't watched that yet. So he's like, well, you know, I was like, before I answer that question, I need to watch that movie and, you know, get an idea. And then I watched it, and he's uh, he's got this, like, real innocence about him. Yeah, there, I don't know. There's just, like, an innocence or a naivete there that he that he plays, especially in that film. So I thought that would be a really handy thing to have for uh, an antagonist. So I, it, Michael... Michael Ironside asked you about Monroe Chambers or about yeah. himself. He's like, what do you think about this guy? Oh, okay. I, was, I thought I, Michael Ironside was asking you to, if he could be in your movie. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, Ironside was, was already committed to it. And he's, and I was like, he's like, do you have this cast? And I was like, no. He's like, what do you think about Monroe Chambers? And I'm like, I, I don't know. So I went home that, that night. I think I was in, I was out of town somewhere. And I went into my hotel room and watched that movie. And then I was like, oh, shit, that's a really interesting idea. Yeah, no kidding. Um, and it sort of, you know, adds something to that character that is interesting outside of, like, stereotypes. No, it totally does. He fits so well in that role. And I don't I don't know. He would definitely wouldn't be the first person I would think of in that role, which is why he's such a clever and good choice. Um, I think he really pulls it off. Like, I, if it's not obvious at this point, I love Knuckleball. I thought it was an amazing movie, but I'm also a huge fan of Michael Ironside. And, like, I can't imagine what it was like working alongside Michael Ironside I, as a huge, like, not only horror, but sci-fi fan. I feel like while you're directing Michael Ironside, there's a chance you could, like, touch his shoulder and get PTSD and shockwaves of, like, onset of Starship Troopers. <laughs> it's like, just, that guy has lived such an incredible life in film. And uh, that must have been so and he's so good in knuckleball. And it was it was amazing to see how much he uh, he really embraced the film and he really loved it because I the first time I had heard of your work and everything was when you you and Michael were on a a podcast together. Oh, (laughs) yeah. yeah. Which is great. Yeah, he's great to work with. Um, We became pretty good friends from that. And we're working on trying to put another film together that would be more like a like an old guy revenge thriller. Oh, he's oh. perfect for that kind of That's role. Great. Like, yeah. He, yeah, I don't know, man. He just like he really brought it in knuckleball, and I, I don't want to give any spoilers for anyone who hasn't had a chance to see it yet. But uh, I think it's one of Ironside's best performances. Like I thought he's so fucking good in that movie. Yeah, I do too. Um, and that's an interesting question, right? Because you see actors that you know are good, really talented, that, you're, that are able to bring it, and then you see them in other films and their performance or whatever isn't strong, but you know that they are strong performers. Yeah. I wonder, wonder, I always wonder myself about how that happens. What, what happened, you know? Yeah. And actually what's, what's funny is that you, that, uh, it shows how memorable the movie and even that episode was that I listened to you guys talk on is, uh, Michael Ironside He's obviously done hundreds of movies at this point and he's not proud of all of them, but knuckleball is one <laughs> of them. And it's, it's, it's really interesting to see that he's like, you know, in his later years, he's really choosing his movies more wisely. And, um, it's, it's just really wild to see that he would go for a movie in a role like knuckleball, like a, a little Canadian film. Like it was a nice surprise for me. I'll tell you. Yeah. I can't imagine. <laughs> yeah. the, I, what happened was I, I'd met him like, I don't know, a dozen years ago or whatever. And when I lived in LA for a short stint, 
okay. <laughs> um, just ran into him randomly, started talking, and I told him one day I would contact him if he was okay with it for a role. And I was like, I don't know what role, but at some point I will have a role. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect for you. Are you okay if I call you? And he's like, oh, yeah, sure, right? And I'm like, yeah, fuck, he's never going to remember this. And then, you know, cut to many years later, uh, and Kurt had just worked with him, who uh, who works with Brandon. Yeah, right. He had just worked with him, and I was like, dude, I, the email that I have for him, like, it doesn't because he gave me his contact information. He's like, oh, well, just uh, I've got it right here. You can you can use it. And then I, then I sent him a note being like, hey, I don't know if you'll remember me it's many years ago. Anyways, he did remember me and corrected me on my memory. <laughs> That's um, awesome. And then, I don't know, 12, 18 hours later, I uh, had already read the script and was like, I'm in. I'm in. Well, he probably had a, we had to probably had a call first. And then uh, whatever his bullshit detector is, uh, I passed it. And then and then he was in. And then we went out. I went out to L.A. when I was out there and we had breakfast. And he told me all these cool stories about his dad. Um, and I ended up rewriting some of those and putting them in the in the film. Oh, Cool. That's awesome. That's really cool. Well, yeah. So like you, you got to bring in, uh, you had a, an acting vet veteran at that point, Michael Ironside in your role in your movie, but then you also brought in Luca Velakis. Is that his name? I don't know. I'm yeah. so bad with pronouncing. So he's a child actor. Right? I think it's like molasses. Vel- okay. Velakis. Yeah. Okay. So you, uh, like this kid couldn't have been older than 10 or 12. Like yeah, I, I, it doesn't say his name or sorry, it doesn't say his age on IMDb, but I was just curious on how, how you go about, and this kind of ties into like how we're going to wrap this episode up, but how do you go about directing a, a kid that young in such a grim story? Like it's such a, this movie is so dark and it's so disturbing and grim at times. How, how did you go about getting that kid in that right headspace? Like how, how, how was that for you? Um, well, I made sure that him and his parents read the script first. Um, yeah just because yeah there's some disturbing things in there that you don't want to surprise someone with yeah um his parents were really uh like really nice normal like seem really grounded people luca himself is like really really mature kid like he feels more like he's like you know like like michael keaton from family ties or i don't know what the wow <laughs> like you know he's like kind of like not the Republican, but the guy with the briefcase that shows up the suit when he's like, you know, 15 for the job yeah. interview. He's, he's kind of like that. He's like really together. So he was probably the most together guy out of everyone on set in some ways. Right. Um, so all those things kind of just seemed like it was the right idea. His audition was really good. Uh, his parents were okay with the, the subject matter. And then I think there was some, uh, he, like during filming, like I think he watched The Revenant every night. So, <laughs> wow. <laughs> just to get him depressed? <laughs> I guess. I don't know. Um, wow. he, I, he's just a real big fan of Leonardo DiCaprio and whatever. There was something in that movie that spoke to him about this journey, I guess. But he, oh, just, he's awesome. just like a really sophisticated, smart kid with a really nice family. And when you're dealing with children actors, you're also dealing with the family. So you, you kind of have to take that into consideration. That was a knuckleball film. I, I kind of... I really, really dug the location. Like the environment was this really harsh and cold, you know, Canadian winter, but the house itself was really desolate and bleak. 
And like not only that, but you had such like solid performances from everyone like, <laughs> driving in those conditions. Just kind of curious, like where you shot it and like what pre-production and rehearsal was like with the cat. It was good. Um, we filmed it in Edmonton and just outside of Ed- Edmonton in a place called Fort Saskatchewan. Oh, okay. Wow. Crazy. Um, and it was really cold. There was a, about a week of probably eight to, or, you know, minus eight or something like that, minus five. Right. Maybe up to zero. But then the rest of the time was, you know, like minus 30, just like yeah. freezing cold. And those were all, you know, the nights, the ex, night exterior stuff. <clears throat> um, and we needed, like, just for the, the budget and the production, we needed to find a place where we could do most of the shoot in one area or close to one area. So we found this house where we had the... The, you know, the, the, the farm. And then we had the other guy's house, uh, Monroe Chambers house. Uh, and I was able to do all that stuff there. Oh, great. So you have to create a geography. <laughs> you have to create a geography, uh, or at least I do, of you know, how the film works so that when people are going from place to place to place, both the overhead landscape was like building a you know, map when you play fantasy games. Um, so you're building this map of like what the world looks like. And then when you're shooting it, all that stuff plays into it because, you know, someone's walking this way and they're going to that object and that object means this. And then when they go to the next place or when they pass that, they step into something else. It makes sense. Uh, and that's how you get to, you know, the house or whatever. And all those places might be in six different areas around the farm and not actually physically be connected, kind of build these maps in your head. And then you have to do the same thing with the interior of the house um, because you have part of the house actually looks like that. Then you have a set that's the bathroom and then you have a set that's the basement. Okay. And then the basement at the very end of the film that, you know, root cellar place. Yeah. That's the actual basement of the house, oh, right? okay. So anyways, you you have like this, it's a, I don't know, it's just like a weird map that you have to create so that things make sense when you're filming them. So when someone's going here, they're going there for a reason and it all, it just always adds up. Totally. Um, I just find like that stuff just really uh, underscores the reality of it. The more you can kind of lock that stuff in your head and create that map and make it feel real, the just kind of more grounded and another layer of sort of reality you can create. I don't know. It's something I fetishize when I watch these films. So when I see a film that doesn't do it uh, well, it really bothers me. <laughs> yeah. Well, that definitely came across in the end result. Like the film is so intimate and really kind of, you know, a lot of like the buildings and locations kind of had their own character in their own right. And I think that definitely came across. I think it's funny, like the things you don't think about that go into a film, like you're basically like an event planner, like <laughs> a, a mathematician. You know, an admin work clerk. You're, yeah, you there's know, so there's so much shit that goes into it that so many people don't realize. But it's uh, that's the amazing thing is that if we, if we can't see any of those seams, uh, that just means you did an incredible job, which you can't you can't see any of those seams in Knuckleball. It all feels so authentic and so real. Um, well, there's weird stuff in the, like that place we filmed at the how the the main location. Like it's a strange, strange place. Like there's these two. It used to be a really prosperous farm in the 20s or 30s or somewhere around then. And then it feels like, you know, over each generation or over time or the market or whatever, there's been a slow decline. So whatever was prosperous, like, just slowly chips away. And you can kind of, or I could see that or imagine that. 
with elements of the house, like just like, you know, the paint is all worn down here. Or the basement has this weird door that was probably for some functional thing 40 years ago, 50 years ago, but now it's just kind of closed off. Um, and you have things like that bus, the bus in the movie. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right? Like there wasn't a bus in the script. But there's <laughs> production value. So like what are you going to do? There, your, your choices are you can try to hide the bus and then you close off certain angles, which you think you'll probably want. So it's better to have freedom. So in my mind, it was better to try to use the bus. And it's such a weird kind of creepy thing anyways. Yeah. Yeah. So it's also not something really out there for Saskatchewan. <laughs> like we, I have a lot of friends who live in like rural Saskatchewan, like small towns and stuff like that. And they got shit like that all throughout their yards. <laughs> totally right. Um, yeah. And obviously the context of the film makes it maybe weirder. But there was another bus that I wasn't able to use just because it was further away and there wasn't any call for it. But it looked like it had been used, or I think I'd heard it had been used to uh, take pigs to market. Oh. It had like a pig run in the back. <laughs> in the back of a school bus. That's crazy. Yeah. So, they, you know, they built the ramp and it's got like the half door. Anyway, it was strange. Anyways, but you got to use that stuff, I think. If someone's giving you that, you got to use it. Oh, sure. If it works, like, why not? Yeah. It, well, it was a weird. Yeah, absolutely. Some uh, pushback on that one. I don't remember from who. They're like, why would someone do this? Why would they put it there? And I'm like, no one's going to think about that. Yeah, exactly. No. I, I just thought it fit. Yeah, I, I didn't think twice. But yeah, you sketch one. You, you, you have farmer friends, right? Oh, absolutely. absolutely. Arguably yeah. too many. <laughs> yeah, um, people use stuff for weird stuff just because it's there where it's supposed to, like, you know, it's in, it's in the spot where they want that thing to be. Yeah, yeah. Uh, checks out. That's how I see it. So, what do you got coming up here, Mike? Like, are you still? Uh, you're obviously everyone. The world, the world's at kind of a standstill right now. But do you have stuff coming up in the future that you're going to be working on with, uh, like, either yourself or Rob or anything that you can talk about, or is it all kind of under wraps right now? Talking to Michael Ironside about making another project together. Um, that was that. That's actually Rob Grant phoning me right there. Oh, nice. Um, Bring him on. yeah rob and i are going to try to make another project together he's got a something really exciting that i think is different and will be a really strong sort of uh jump up in his career if it's able to work out that way Um, awesome and then yeah michael ironside and i are trying to work on another thing so some kind of revenge thriller uh and then there's a few other filmmakers i'm talking about collaborating with uh, but the main thing is I want to try to spend a little bit more time directing, be maybe more selective with where I spend my time, if I'm able to be. Yeah, yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. Well, um, let's uh, let's before we get on to talking about your, the, so we asked you to come up with like a list of five movies that you could uh, narrow down like some like were these inspirational movies for uh, Knuckleball? Some of them were, yeah. Some of them were directly inspirational. Okay, perfect. So we're gonna get onto that, but before before that, I know Kyle has a burning question for you that is very important for yes. uh, your region where you are right now. Kyle, go ahead. Oh, <laughs> this is really <laughs> poor timing. Well, we asked the same question to uh, well everyone's friend of the show at this point, Brandon Christensen, because he's yeah. also from Calgary. Yeah. And so uh, I just wanted to know if whether you fuck with the Calgary Stampede or not. I, I try not to. <laughs> okay, <laughs> fair enough. Good answer. 
Okay. We're perfect. just curious. I, I, I always need to know, like, I feel like I can really sort of judge someone whether they do, uh, you know, like the Stampede or not. Well, if I, if I worked in oil and gas, I would love it because you basically get 10 days to get drunk and have an excuse for it from like 10 yeah. in the morning on. <laughs> Completely. Yeah, out. That checks out. <laughs> Uh, all right, well, let's let's move on. So let's. How did you go about this list? Did you just choose the these ones were just ones that were directly related to uh, movies that influenced Knuckleball, or are these just ones that you were influenced by? It's like a very difficult. My, my uh, wifey is laughing at me. <laughs> she thinks every time I talk about film stuff, I'm just a pretentious idiot. But um, oh, I've been there. That's why <laughs> we're all pretentious idiots. <laughs> I know that all too well. <laughs> <laughs> this is we're podcasters. We're even worse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, I think my do? girlfriend would throw up if she heard this episode. <laughs> <laughs> it's important, right? What we're doing is important. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. As long as someone else can tell me that, it's all good. I'm hoping someone answers that question. That was a question. Oh. <laughs> it is important. It is important. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Cool. Um, so, yeah, some of these were direct uh, inspirations or reference films or things that I watched to uh, think about how to make a film for adults with a child actor. Awesome. Okay. Right? Awesome. Um, so this isn't in any particular order, but I'll let you know the ones which uh, were watched for that. For sure. And let's talk about them a little bit, each one. Yeah, sure. Which, um, yeah. So I'll start with uh, Night of the Hunter. Ooh. The black and white film? The black and white film, the only film, I think, written and directed by Charles Lawton. Am I correct? Yes. Yes, that is. If I'll check right here. but um, Yeah, that's right. Was it? Did you say, was it written by him too? I thought so, but I could be wrong. It might but, be based uh, on a book even. Yeah, he was a screen, it's a screenplay contributor, uncredited. Uh, oh. But that's just IMDb, so for all we know, behind the scenes, <laughs> he wrote the whole thing. <laughs> Um, amazing movie, amazing uh, performance by Robert Mitchum. Um, kind of the beginning, maybe, of Southern Gothic and cinema. Totally. <clears throat> um, a strange movie. Uh, and the like, the actually the geography in that movie is fucked. Like, they go into like rooms and like basements become like these huge cavernous spaces. But it might make sense if the perspective is from the kid's perspective who are looking at this world as being kind of strange and foreign and kind of filling in a little bit of their uh, imaginative idea of, of, a, of a place. Yeah. And those kids are really good in it. Like there's a, there's a, like, this is one of the things I thought about a lot. Like you, if you're going to put a kid in a movie and have the adults try to, you know, that kid can't be annoying. You know, and if it, and if and if and if kids like just like whining all the time or like or just scared all the time, you're not gonna. I don't think be able to empathize with them. You know, even if that's the right emotion, it just. I don't think you can carry that. It's so true. And these kids are clever and smart, even though they're scared and horrified and you know brutalized. They're still like clever and they're resourceful and they figure it out uh, and they push through. And they can't overpower based on like some kind of supernatural state or something outside of what they're actually able to do within the logic of the story, which they're just regular kids. It was, it's, it's, uh, it was pretty. Anyways, that was pretty uh, <clears throat> referential, mostly in terms of how to think about children actors. In totally, because that's also something that like uh, even recently I don't I don't like uh, 
especially with another filmmaker present here, because like, I don't want to put you in a tough situation, but I recently watched The Boy 2. Uh, Kyle and I both watched it. So not going to like shit on the movie, but the thing is, like the kid was so – he was so sp- – erratic at all times and it was so annoying to watch and that's something that you really nailed in knuckleballs that that kid is so like so reserved but he's so he's so quiet and he's so he he, i don't know i just i i totally bought into him way more than i do in most child actors and i also like there's going to be obvious comparisons to i'm sure you've heard it a hundred times by now the obvious comparisons to home alone and stuff like that yeah i love that i love that you only incorporated like you this this movie could easily there's so many Home Alone ripoffs out there, quote unquote, and this only has like one scene that's really like a Home Alone-ish scene. The rest of the movie is that how an actual kid would react in this situation. I, would call I love that. I, I like knowing they do actually took the time to get into that kid's head. You're frozen up. Yeah. Mitch, you froze up. Yeah, I didn't hear it. I didn't hear any of that. Uh, sorry. We lost you Could for you a guys second, hear me? Mitch. Can we you hear me you now? For a second. We can hear you now, okay. yes. Okay, sorry, what did you say there? We couldn't hear you for the last 20 seconds, 10 seconds. Oh, damn. Okay, well, just continue. Sorry. We enjoyed the Home Alone homage. <laughs> yeah, is, oh, yeah, sorry. I don't know where I got cut off, but I believed that kid. Uh, I believed, I, I appreciate that you took the time to get into his head and mm-hmm. that you uh, actually looked into what how a kid would react in these situations or at least how one how a, how an entertaining kid would look in that situation. You didn't put an annoying kid in that situation for us all to watch for an hour and a half. Yeah, and you, it's harder than you think, um, just because a lot of act kid actors come out of like kind of I don't know feels like a YTV style. Yeah, it's kind of like goofy. Yeah, no kidding. Horniness or goofiness too. And they want to be exaggerated and like act yeah. really loud. Like a good example of that is that kid from New. We just did a Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, the whole franchise, like kid from New Nightmare. Like he's always yelling at like everything. It's like, hey, let's tone it down just a little bit. I know you're ten, but fucking learn. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Learn. <laughs> um, and then the next one, I let the right one in. Fuck oh, yeah. yes. And this Great one movie. was like a big influence, both for the, the watching a child actor being able to carry a film, <clears throat> but also uh, for the visuals because there's a nice kind of sense of reservedness with the camera, like where it's very in control formal um and that's what i was hoping to achieve with uh this with knuckleball so that's like probably i don't know kyle like can you think like that's the most authentic child relationship i've seen no actually that's stand by me like i don't i don't i hope i'm not jumping in on uh, any picks you have but uh i will say stand by me is another great example of that like child actors who have good relationships together like the last at the right one in. That's a well, that's and a they feel authentic, pick. right? Like it's totally um, feels real. Well, in the so. in the one the one kid is playing like a you know x hundred year old vampire. What I don't yeah. know they ever say right, but like an old old person. Yeah, have a really like it's really interesting how they interpret that. Totally, totally. And the violence is great in that film. So good. <laughs> like how do you feel about the remake? I didn't see it. No. So I guess yeah. I felt about it. Yeah, you didn't need to. I didn't need to. Yeah, and that's exactly it. It's it's not a bad movie. It's just an exact like carbon copy. Like that's exactly it. Yeah. Yeah, the original is perfect. And then I'll go to the Fallen Idol. The Fallen Idol. Yeah. I've never heard of this one. Yeah, me neither. Oh, it's a Carol Reed film from like 1948 or nine or something like that. Okay, yeah, pull it up here. 
Yeah. Based on a story by um, Graham Ge- Graham Green. Correct. Yes. Yeah, Graham Green, based on a short story by Graham Green. Yeah, I think it was made one year before he made The Third Man. Okay. Yeah. Kind of like what I think is one of his masterpieces. But again, it's got a child actor, which is able to carry it. It's a little bit more acting of the time period, um, which is just a stylistic. The kid feels like kind of, you know, deep and hurt. And he like his parents are somewhat absentee. Uh, and you feel like just kind of that sense that like he doesn't know any better, but he like you always get the sense like something's missing and he's trying and he kind of blames himself uh, without it being like heavily underscored. It's more like just really nice subtext. I'm going to add that one to my list right now. Yeah, I never heard of that one. That's... It's Graham Greene. Sorry, and it's uh, Carol Reed, and he was a, an amazing filmmaker. Yeah, I know about like obviously, obviously I know about like Oliver and like The Third Man, but uh, that's it out of these, I think. And awesome. It, and it's set up almost like a thriller, where he thinks he's trying to solve a mystery and there might be danger because of this. Gotcha. But it'll just be his imagination. Awesome. Um, and then Attack the Block. Oh fuck yes! Awesome, <laughs> great movie. Yeah, which is just a really fun, awesome movie about what these kids would do in this neighborhood. Things <laughs> came down, which is a great premise. Yeah. That movie came out when I was a teenager, so uh, it was it really struck me like in the right spot because I was like I felt like it was properly representing teenagers at the time, even though it's a completely different um, part of the world. They were still they felt real. It didn't feel like they were. Um, like there's so many, so many teen movies that they just feel like they're MTV versions of real people. Yeah. And that's not at all what Attack the Block feels like. It feels so grounded and real and gritty. And it's got those like um, those fun uh, moments of humor where they're like trying to figure out what to do in a time of like extreme danger. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Always. Fun. John Boyega is amazing in that film. Oh yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. He's uh, out attacking the block right now. God bless him, you know? Fucking right. Um, and then uh, I'm going to say 400 blows, but there's a side one with that, which is actually one of one of my favorite short films ever, which is the continuation of that story, which was only done as a short film before the next one, called uh, Antoine and Colette. Oh, yeah. I'm not, I, I've heard of that, but I've never seen it. I've, I've seen the 400 blows, absolutely. Okay. I, the only place I saw it is on the box, the box set. So on the Criterion oh, okay. box set for all the uh, those films, mm-hmm. that short film is included in there. Wow, gotcha. Anyway, it's an amazing thing. It's about like him being like, I don't know, I don't understand how it works in France, especially at that time. But you have, um, you have, I, don't, I assume he's in high school. But because he ran away from home, he's living on his own. And then he's obviously come from a family that he didn't think was a good family. And he's uh, he meets a girl that he likes, and he's working at a record pressing plant while he's while he goes to school and attends lectures about art. Um, he meets this this uh, young woman who uh, he kind of hangs out with and goes to their family, and he might like their family more than her sometimes. And that's maybe why he wants to wants the relationship to work. Wow. Anyways, it's obviously it's a French movie, so it's a love story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this sounds great, though. I feel but like I've lived this movie. But it's really like a nice, fun, clever film. 
and just like a very much a truthful movie. That's and awesome. 400 blows. I don't know. A billion other people have said more about it better than yep. I have. So I don't know. Okay, those are some solid picks. So those are yeah, definitely those are. So to recap, what, what was your first pick again? I've got two more. Oh, you got two more. Perfect. Butcher Boy. Butcher Boy by Neil Jordan. Oh, yes. Yes. Butcher Boy. And I only saw that movie once and it was like scarred me and I could never watch it again. I just remember it being like horrific and just like dealing with brutal, brutal things in a strange way. Um, But it's kind of the one one movie of his that you don't hear much. Many people talk about or I don't remember hearing anyone ever talk about. Right. Yeah. People. People like obviously mainly talk about like the crying game. You're never going right. to talk about this one uh, or Michael Collins or whatever. Uh, and I think this for him, this was like a low budget film that he wanted to make to kind of wash his palette after, after making those bigger budget films. Um, and then I've got Ivan's childhood, which is another one where you can see a kid operating in an adult film with uh, mature themes. Oh yeah. I, Ivan's this, childhood. You said, yeah. Starkovsky's first movie. Is a really challenging watch. You've seen this one, Kyle? Yeah. But it's got like it's got shots in it that probably can only happen if the Russian state is supporting your film. That's so true. Yeah. You know, it's like really like specific in that way. It's 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 like the I think the opening shot, if I remember correctly, is like this shot from a tree line or above a tree line that feels like on a it's like a camera on a zip line somehow. Oh, and it like comes. And it yeah. comes down through the tree line, down below. Like, it must be traveling, like, you know, three, 400 feet or something like that, up to, like, ground level. And then I think it goes uh, where this kid is underground in these kind of trenches. Like, right. it's, it's remarkable. It's, like, in the 60s, too. That's, yeah, 62. That's, uh, yeah. I mean, talk about a, a director putting perspective into a film, right? Like, all kinds of perspective and using the camera in a way to... I don't even know. Elevate all of the, I guess, geography what you've been talking about on the show earlier. Like that's yeah. The, I forgot about that film. I I, I watched it a couple of years ago when I was binging all the Tarkovsky stuff that I hadn't seen. It's um, the most palatable of his films, probably, or the I would think. I mean, still feels challenging to me. Like in my in my memory of it, it's been a couple of years now. I just remember feeling pretty bleak. <laughs> well, watch like the mirror and then watch that. And then like, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> okay. Um, and then the last one is the fifth. fist, the fits, fits, the fits, which is like a art house genre film. I would describe it as. Oh, I'm looking at it here. Yeah, I know it's on Criterion right now, and I remember hearing about it briefly. I think it played at Sundance. Okay. Okay. Yeah. It, is it? Uh, it from 2015. Yeah, and I think it's a, the debut film by Anna Rose Homer. Yes. Yep. Correct here. Yeah. Anyways, kid actor, like a really fascinating kid actor where you really want to watch her. She really inhabits the screen. She's able to carry it, no problem. She's a boxer, like boxer. She must, I don't know how old she is, but I'm guessing 11, 12. Oh, right, Real yeah. Boy. And she kind of sees these people dancing and decides to, she gets intrigued by it and decides to try out and join the, dan- the dance team that's working out of the same community hall. And then, and then people come down with these unexplainable fits that sort of inhabit their body and they're not sure what's happening to them and i i don't know what the movie's about but i enjoyed it <laughs> really? uh, yeah i mean it's I, I would think it's clearly a metaphor for something i'm not sure what um, yeah. you could ascribe a bunch of different ideas to it and the acting in sense of place is so strong 
Yeah. Like it really feels like wherever, you know, whatever this neighborhood or place, like it feels really lived. Yeah, I always like those movies where you can like, after you got to watch them a couple of times. And it's a short movie too, an hour and 12 minutes. So yeah. on, uh, it's on the Sundance channel, which you can get on Prime Video. So, And it's got dancing in it, which is always, a, I like it. I like yeah, it's a good, uh, good uh, you could pair this up with Climax. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> a Raven Banner production. Yeah, <laughs> that'd be great. Awesome. Okay, man, the, those are some wicked. This is a. This is the first. Those are by far. That's the most uh, recommendations of movies I haven't seen <laughs> out of all what the guests that we've had so far. Final one. Yes. Yeah. It's just more a formative film and it's a little bit broader in scope. But I think watching it as an adult, you can pull more out of it than you can as a kid. As a kid, you can watch it and the story will carry you. But as an adult, you'll get a lot more. Uh, and that's uh, Time Bandits. Oh, <laughs> yes, that's been brought awesome. up a couple times on our show. Actually, Time Bandits is fucking nuts. That's a, a master wild piece. film. Yeah, yeah, it's it's crazy. That's it's awesome. Cool. What a good pick. Fun fun movie. Yeah, that's awesome, man. These are, these are great picks. These are uh, this is a little bit of everything, you know, something yeah. that, something for I, everyone. I really appreciate how much effort you put into formulating this list, Michael. And thanks so much for talking with us today. That was, it was awesome. And we're, we're big fans of what you do and we wish you nothing but the best of luck in the future and what you continue to do once the world gets back to normal. Um, is there anywhere that we can keep up with your stuff or like where our listeners can keep up with you? Yeah. I'm on Twitter at film Peterson and I'm on Facebook just under my name. Okay. And um, you're one of those people, like, just follow you on Facebook kind of thing? Oh, it's not even a follow. Like, just friend me or... <laughs> okay. You're friend me, good. say hello. So, okay. yeah, you're, you're, Mike, you're Mike Peterson, not Michael Peterson, like the convicted murderer. Or the sci-fi author, or the, what, there's a there's an author. Yes. Yeah, yes. Bronson's real name is Michael Peterson, the what? convicted killer from Britain guy. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And there's a famous Australian surfer named Michael Peterson, so I'm like number five or six. Gotcha. <laughs> Maybe for well, I can tell you right now, you are our favorite Michael Peterson. Without a doubt. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. So, yeah. Thank, thanks a ton, man. And uh, if yeah. you ever uh, make make something like next time you make something, if you want to come on here and promote it, we'd love to talk to you again. Uh, this was great. We had a lot of fun, and we hope you did as well. And yeah, uh, we, sorry, it's chaotic yeah. here where I'm at. No, not a problem, man. And uh, it's chaotic. Yeah. Yeah. So just uh, stay safe and stay sane. And um, thanks again, Michael. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. All right. Awesome. We'll see you guys next week. Take care, everyone.